Hi, everyone. My name is Shannon Calder, licensed therapist, and I'm joined by Dr. Kathy Barrett, forensic psychologist. We talk about all topics from a psychological perspective. Welcome to Terror Talk. Hi, everybody. This is Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Kathy, how are you? Good, good, good. Little bit of an update. We now have an Instagram account. We finally started. So you guys oh, can yeah. follow us at uh, Terror Talk Podcast on Instagram. Come and join us. We uh, try to post new things every day. And uh, come, yeah, come check it out. Yeah, sweet. Yeah, we have the Twitter, which you guys might already know about because it's in one of the ads I recorded that's in between the episodes or in between the chunks of episode. Um, and we also have a Facebook page. So all that information will be in the little the little ad that we do in between the segments. Um, well, and also, Kathy, you must be sort of preparing for the Lizzie Borden series oh my gosh yeah so I mean I'm doing a bunch of stuff so I'm researching her I'm almost done with the book that's based um, on her trial and I actually just watched the film but I thought this was really just an interesting fact Um, you know they had a lot of money Andrew Borden had a lot of money Mm. but for whatever reason and this plays into the trial is um, they lived well below their means they had no electricity no running water um so just a really interesting fact. And you'll see why when we talk about it later. But this was a very strange family. They had locks on every single door inside the house. So it just gets creepier and creepier uh, the more I get into it. Yeah, it sounds creepy. Um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, May 8th um, is when we're going to start that series on Lizzie Borden. So be sure to come back for that. Uh, and then after that, we're going to do Charles Manson. So we have a little... We have May is a bit of a true crime month, I guess. Except yeah, for- I'm look. I'm definitely looking forward to Manson. Me too. Me too. Um, except for May first. May first, we're gonna do a pet cemetery. Uh, we're gonna talk about the new pet cemetery, the old pet cemetery from 1989, and I am actually reading the book again because I haven't read it in a million years. Oh wow! I'll be able to. I'll be able to throw in a few, I don't know, book moments for us when we get yeah. to that part. So that'll be uh, next week. Um, one thing I did want to mention, actually, in news is Monster Palooza was this past weekend. Uh, and they, Halloween Horror Nights, made another announcement. So, uh-huh. we, have Stranger, yeah, so we have the Stranger Things maze that's going to happen. And the Stranger Things uh, season, I believe, releases July 4th, right? Yeah, I believe the first, I think they're going to release the first two episodes together, and then it'll be weekly um, after that. But I believe 4th of July is the, finally, everyone's been waiting for this third season. It better, it better um, deliver. stand up. Yeah, better deliver, because we've, everybody's been anticipating. Well, this is, uh, this is my Game of Thrones, because yeah, I hate I, Game of Thrones. That's but right. Is, I, yeah. Yeah. I I don't like it when we don't get to binge them, but whatever. Yeah. Um, I understand. So then at Monster Palooza, uh, John Murdy, who's the creative director for Halloween Horror Nights, and Chris Williams, the art director, production designer for HHN, as they call it, announced uh, the second maze that they announced, which is an original maze called Holidays in Hell. So, yeah, last year they did a scare zone. I don't know if you remember, Kathy, the scare yeah, zone. Yeah, they usually do the scare zone. They're doing a maze there instead? 
Yeah, so they did it's this is a scare zone into a maze. So oh. it's an original one, so they tested it with a scare zone, it went over well, and now they've created a maze. So it's holidays in hell, and so it's like July fourth and Christmas and um Happy New Year. They picked like six holidays and um Pretty apparently cool. inspired by these really creepy Victorian cards. These <laughs> they're really creepy. <laughs> they showed the cards, it's just really disturbing. Um, and Slash did the score. Um, oh, wow. Music score. He's done scores for them before, but, um, oh no, Slash did, I'm sorry, Slash did the, um, cause they also talked about the 2018 Maze for Universal Monsters, which I know is your favorite. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Um, Slash did the score for that. Actually, um, this guy figure, uh, he's an EDM artist is doing the score for Holidays in Hell. Sorry, I messed that up, but, um. You know what I realized, by the way? Sorry to interrupt you, but no, we're talking ahead. about ho- holidays in hell. We we never reviewed April Fool's Day. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it probably would have been a 10-minute review because it was terrible and it was made in, like, 1984. <laughs> but, yeah, I feel we like they have to make... It's just like, yeah, garbage movies. Here we go. They, they have to make horror movies for every holiday, and there was one called April Fool's Day. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm sure. So, well, maybe... Maybe around um, Halloween Horror Nights, we'll we'll be inspired to do a Holidays in Hell episode, meaning talk about it. Scary movies for each holiday, which yeah, could be could be kind of cool. Um, so yeah, it was interesting. So they announced the second maze. So that's that's my news. Um, today, today on the episode, um, let's see, what are we doing? Oh yes, the disappearance of Madeline McCann is what we're going to talk about. We're going to juxtapose that a bit with the John Bonet case because, um, so for two reasons, uh, the disappearance of Madeline McCann is a Netflix documentary of eight episodes, if you haven't seen it. Uh, so we're going to discuss that, but it's also recently, um, there's been a recent um, new development in the John Bonet case. So it's gotten news lately. Also, there's a movie that came out that was, originally shown at Sundance um, and now it's on Netflix called The Casting of John Bidet. So we're going to wrap all that up into today's episode. Right. So we're going to start with the disappearance of Madeline McCann. I, I say McCann, I say McCain, it depends. <laughs> but I believe after finding Neverland, was, leaving Neverland. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm a mess. Um, <laughs> you'd think after watching eight very slow episodes of this documentary I would know how to pronounce her name I'm going with McCann um so this documentary is through interviews with tourists police journalists the family as well as uh interspersed news footage and reenactments it's the story of a three-year-old British girl who in uh, traveled with her parents and her twin brother and sister to Portugal for vacation. They stayed in a, the Ocean Club Resort. Uh, it was May 2007. And one night as her parents and her friends were hanging out down in the, I guess the pool area, you'd say she was abducted. And it's basically the story of how that broke down and who, who the suspects were and the impending case that has lasted you know, well, what has it been? 12 years. So that's what we're going to talk about. Um, 
I'm just going to say real quickly that the documentary as a documentary, two things. One, really slow. Yes. Um, lots of padding. Lots of, well, that really says it. Lots of padding. Really slow. I got I had to do other things while I watched it. I did, I did too. But the problem is the guy, when he starts pe- speaking Portuguese, I have to then stop and look at I the know, TV there's or rewind it. it. And there's like an Italian guy at one point. Oh, and- yeah. So sometimes you got to, yeah, I would have to pause and then sort of sit down and watch those sections. Um, the other thing is, is that from what I'm gathering from other reading I've been doing is that n- nothing new was presented in this documentary. Like Mm-mm. no new information about the case was really given. So those are two things you should know. If you know nothing about the case, I think it's an interesting thing to know i think it's certainly one of the most publicized most expensive um most known about abductions in the last what 25 years or something so yeah i mean I, her and john benet are definitely two of the about john benet just because it's it's if you live in the states that's where it happened um right but, it, but i think Madeline McCann, it's safe to say Madeline McCann comes in close second for people knowing at least who live in the United States. Right, Um, like a little girl, but the cases are very different. Cases are very different. Um, And just to sort of say about the new evidence piece, like you were were saying how there wasn't really anything new, I I just wanted to reference, they had talked about this, I think they brought this up in the documentary, but I I also remember this case when it was finally solved, but Eaton Pats, who disappeared in 1979, you know, they didn't find his killer till 2017. So, you know, sometimes these cases, Pedro Hernandez was his name. He was convicted in 2017 and he, uh, Eaton Pats and Adam Walsh, I think it was Eaton Pats was the first one who was the the boy on the milk carton. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, some of these cases can go cold for 30 plus years. It, if they're ever, you know, solved, it's really, I, I can't imagine being in that state of, um, I don't know, that state of being a parent and just being in that survival mode and that resiliency you have to have 30 years later, 40 years later. Right. I mean, there's these fa- very famous cases where, um, you know, the girls have been taken into families and birthed children by their abductors and mm-hmm. then been found. So. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that, of course, Madeline's parents are hoping that that happens. Yeah. Uh, So I want to mention how this starts um, so that you get a sense of the case that we're talking about. And then we're probably just going to riff on our our thoughts about the case. Um, So this three year old is asleep in her bed. Her siblings are asleep in their bed. And the parents, mom and dad, are with their friends. They're all vacationing together. So they're adult friends. And they're sitting, I don't know, they say it in the documentary, but I don't know, 25 yards away or something, sort of down the hill by the pool, eating and drinking. And what the parents have decided to do is leave their children in the rooms sleeping and have a standing reservation at this poolside area 
after the kids go to bed at you know nine o'clock at night to be at eight thirty at night actually the reservation is for something like that um where they can all sit and hang out and then the idea was that every 20 minutes they would go and do um like a check a bed check to check on them see if they needed anything so they do that there's one check everybody's fine the next guy goes, you know, because they take turns. The next guy goes, does a round, doesn't actually get eyes on Madeline, actually hears a voice in the room, but thinks it's just the kid like moving around and doesn't check on the kid and then goes back to eating and drinking. And then I guess the third check was Kate, who is Madeline's mom. And she goes and checks and Madeline's gone. And it's about 10 p.m. She comes running back out yelling, she's been taken, she's been taken, taken. I guess the window was open and Madeline was gone. And then it ensues, you know, chaos ensues. When does, uh, Shannon, when does, uh, is it Jane Tanner go check? Because she's when she potentially saw the the man walking child. Oh, yeah. Uh I don't know. Maybe I th- I she was the she, first one. I think she was the first or second. I think there were. I think she's yeah. the first one. I think she's the first one because what ends up happening is the second one goes and the guy doesn't actually put eyes on Madeline. He just hears, he just opens the door and listens like a big idiot. And we're, we're bringing, we're bringing her up because as we talk about this, her, her witness statement is in question. It changes yeah. and yeah. Yeah. The whole damn thing is in question really what, what you get kind of, because we're not going to go, you know, moment by moment, if you'd like to sit through the whole <laughs> eight hours of it, you can. Um, and that part of it is the part that's interesting. If you have the time is that it really shows how, um, how the suspicion tracks, you know, First, it's the parents, then it's the neighbor, then it's the website guy, then it's child abductor, doctor rings in Italy or whatever, you know, like over the course of the 10 years or so, the where they put their focus as far as who did it is all over the place. And of course, they start with the parents. So I think we should talk a little bit about the parents and what we thought of them. I think that the big question that everyone is asking about this case is were the parents negligent? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think we should talk a little bit about that. So what you've already heard me say is that the parents had a, what they did was is apparently this reservation was hard to get at the restaurant. You, you were supposed to get up every morning and make your reservation for that night. And they wouldn't let you make reservations ahead of time. But these people made a deal with them that they would have a standing reservation for like 10 people every night at, let's say, 9 p.m. And the, and the restaurant agreed. So it was already an exception to their rules, I guess. Um, and their plan was to eat and drink while their kids were in bed and leave the door open the doors open unlocked meaning so that they could do 20 minute rounds so that each person didn't need a key to everybody's place they just left all the doors open 
and they could just check on them. In a foreign place. Yeah, in a foreign place on a road. If you see the movie, it's on a on a road, and there's like a side entrance that you have to go up to walk the length of all the rooms. So there's an entrance from the street you don't like have to walk by where the parents were sitting or anything there's a total like side entrance where anyone could go in and out windows are open plus if you think about it the restaurant knew that those people all those parents were going to be leaving their kids every single night at 9 p.m so you know talk about Talk about giving a green light to whoever the hell wanted to. Uh, regardless of regardless of whether or not they knew who was involved, it's it's a case of extreme negligence. Yeah, that that's really the question that we're you know that I'm asserting is it doesn't matter like in this moment in time, I I don't know if the parents had anything to do with the abduction or not, but I think it's pretty clear that. If they could go back, they wouldn't do it that way. There's just a lot of, I mean, like you were saying earlier, this goes from, you know, witnessing the potential abduction to a potential drug trade being what happened to this young girl. But there's so many things when you go back to the parent, it was negligence or it was, um, you know, intentional. For example, after they find that she's gone, they just have people coming in and out of the house, ruining the crime scene. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, and now again, I've, I've never been in this sort of state of panic. Would I think to keep everybody out because they were ruining, ruining forensic evidence, maybe because of the field we're in, we might, but yeah. I don't know. I can't say for sure. What I do know is I wouldn't want everybody coming in and out if I was in that state of mind, regardless of whether I was paying attention to forensic evidence or not. Right. I mean, here, here's what I think is, here's what casts suspicion a little bit for me. So, and again, you know, it, nobody knows how they would act in this situation, like Kathy says. But I do know from watching the documentary that these people, I mean, he's a surgeon, and I can't remember what she does, but they're both, they both, I think what didn't serve them is they both present very cold. Yes. And, and detached. And um, he's a little bit, seems a little bit sort of narcissistic and wants to control things. A and bit. very reactive. Mm -hmm. And reactive. Absolutely. So if you have the type of personality and we're, you know, shrinky. So if you have the type of personality that is able to compartmentalize things like a surgeon would do. And like he comes off in the interviews and things like he can compartmentalize his emotions. Don't you think in that moment he would have he or she would have been able to say like don't come in here or what if there's fingerprints on the windows you know like 100 percent. It, it didn't fit his personality profile it didn't fit right. her personality profile that everything in this whole case has been controlled except for the crime scene doesn't make any sense to me right that's the part that doesn't and that's when they choose to, to be disorganized and not be able to hold on to their emotions. I just don't buy it. No, I don't buy that either. I don't buy that part of it, just personality wise. And again, you know, we all go off the rails, who knows, but that, that doesn't jive for me. 
The fact that they're super irresponsible with their kids doesn't jive for me. The only uh, thing I can I can say about the disorganization piece is if, if they are drunk, right. um, they might be sloppier and they may not be thinking that way. That's the but I would I would think that if their child's missing and they truly aren't involved, that would be pretty fucking sobering. Yeah. So no matter how much alcohol they had had, some sort of reason or something would have set in. And those pieces just didn't add up for me. Yeah. And I, I mean, everybody is different. But I mean, part of me wants to think that one of the things that I would probably perseverate on is don't touch anything. You know, I would just I might go towards that. And again, like you said, that just might be my training and my experience or it might be all of the freaking true crime that I watch or I don't know, or all the books or whatever, or, you know, family members influences on me that are in the criminal justice system. It's just like, I, I, I might be. But here's the other piece though, Shannon, here's, here's the other piece. And I totally agree with you. Let's put all that aside and Mm -hmm. say, they're not thinking because they don't have that sort of background, which we, I think you and I both decided that's kind of BS because the way he's wired, he would, but let's just, argument the twins are still in there sleeping their two children who are still there are sleeping through this which is one of the reasons why they suspected drugging these kids who sleeps through that what two-year-olds sleep through that and then you've already lost one kid but you're having a barrage of people coming in and out of this place but your twins are in another room i would be like get the hell out grab your kids get the Mm -hmm. police i mean it doesn't take someone in our field or or a criminal justice field Mm -hmm. this is just a human reaction understood that that's definitely one of the things you think like why the reactions just don't seem human in many ways they don't seem like innocent truly shocked people um in those moments and I'm also, so what, what Kathy was alluding to is one of the scenarios that the police sort of made up. One of the theories was that they had given Madeline, you know, like cough syrup or something to sleep, like a Benadryl or something to sleep so that she would stay asleep and that they accidentally killed her. That was sort of one of the theories is that they accidentally gave her too much and she died and that they were trying to cover it up. That was one of the theories. And so, uh, yeah, it just doesn't, it just doesn't jive. So there's two things. One is you just get the sense that it's kind of BS, some of the stuff that happened, but then you also, one thing I don't think that is in question at all is that there was some negligence there. And the guilt and the shame that you probably see on their faces in those first weeks of interviews that they show for the on the news that guilt and shame could simply be that you know they really messed up and that they feel responsible but not responsible in the way some people might think they feel responsible mm-hmm. so it's hard to interpret because it does look like they feel really guilty and shameful. And some people are like, oh, they did it because they look guilty. But I think they could also just be ashamed of their behavior. And also um, another thing that came up they were talking about, too, was um, how much emotion do they put into it towards the press? We're not seeing right. them behind closed doors. No. Um, and, you know, if they do, 
just more from a psychological perspective, I'm thinking if, if they do end up processing it and letting themselves go, then do they have to, then, then do they then have to believe she's gone and they have Mm -hmm. to, they've then mourned it. You know, I think it's, it is complicated. There's just certain things that even with that don't make sense, but we don't really know behind closed doors what they were going through. No, I mean, you can extrapolate that there was shock and disbelief and that they're not sleeping, you know? I mean, yeah, they're not sleeping or they're taking sleeping pills and medications, Xanax and stuff that they're being given in order to keep them calm. And so their affect is flat. Mm -hmm. There's lots of different, there's lots of different ways to rationalize or excuse whatever they did afterwards. The only piece that I think isn't in question is, is the way they got there where there was such easy access to their child. Right. Um, that who would just set it up like that you know yeah just you know just amazing how that broke down so then the other the other piece I'd like to talk about just before we take a break is um so the other negligence I think that's going on in this whole series is the police negligence (laughs) Mm -hmm. oh it really shines a light on you know it's 2007 here we are 12 years later but i feel like we had a lot of technology in 2007 we have a lot more now but i feel like even in portugal they had a lot more technology than they do now but Mm -hmm. several so to begin with many many police officers trampled over the what we would call the crime scene right oh my god i mean yes like the whole department yeah, everybody came to visit. Um, and so it was just an absolute mess. So when later they come up with this theory where they bring the, they bring this blood sniffing dog in. They have the, the, they have the uh, blood sniffing and then the corpse sniffing. Cadaver sniffing dog. Cadaver, cadaver sniffing. Right. The cadaver, I think like around the end of episode three or whatever, four, they bring in this cadaver sniffing dog. And the dog, you know, smells hypothetically cadaver on the doll that the mom's been carrying around. And on the driver's side door of the parent's car and in the boot of the car, as they say in, in, in British land or the trunk, as we say here on the mother's clothes, uh, you know, then it becomes, then they go back to the parents, you know, there's, they spent some time thinking it was the website designer and the neighbor and this, that, or the other. And now the cadaver sniffing dog points them back to mom and how mom must've killed her and carried her. some carried her away in the trunk of the car. Turns out later, you know, there's no DNA that matches that. There's no real samples um they just go off on this wild goose chase you know and i love dogs as much as the nest gal but this is not science you know yeah like what are they doing well and i think even the um was it the italian officer or the the portuguese the, the italian uh yeah God, i forgot he's a detective or whatever a private just, investigator guy. yeah he goes he goes I, okay i i've never believed in this dog thing you know this is just <laughs> not, now they're like they're so reaching at this point, right? Trying to point, and and I think this, and maybe we'll talk about this more in the second half. But this speaks towards once the focus goes on the parents being the 
perpetrators, they really stop looking for her. Yeah, and that's what's terrible. And that's, of course, what the parents say is they're like, every time you turn to us, we know you stop looking. And that's killing us, you know? Yeah. Like, stop looking at us. Start looking for her, which is a response of someone either incredibly sadistic and savvy or what a parent would say if their kid was really gone and they really didn't know where they were, you know? Yeah. I mean, they end up questioning the mom for like 11 hours and bringing in the FBI and she got a lawyer and it was all very, very complicated. Um, so that kind of wraps up about the first four episodes actually um, is uh, about half the show. Then they, that's when they've finished questioning her and the second half starts to turn into a different kind of story. Uh, the family brings in a millionaire to help fund several different journeys down the fine Madeline rabbit hole. So when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more about this. And also we're going to start to introduce more of um, John Bonet and that story, very different stories. And there was a documentary recently, as I said before, called The Casting of John Bonet that's now out on Netflix that we can get into. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. While we take a break, go follow us on Instagram at Terror Talk Podcast, Twitter at Talk Terror, or on our Facebook page, Halloween All Year Long. If you prefer email, it's terrortalkpodcast at gmail.com. So reach out. If you like us, you can help us by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes, or check out our Patreon page. We upload new episodes every Wednesday and Friday. Keep coming back, but first, stick around for more of our show. back this is shannon and kathy with terror talk to continue our conversation of the disappearance of madeline mccann and we're going to bring john venet into this too very famous case from i guess 20 25 years now um ago so the second half of the madeline mccann mccann oh my god <laughs> <laughs> i'm as drunk as those parents um, <laughs> Cool, Shannon. Very cool. Okay. The second half of these episodes, five through eight, basically take you on a journey of um, a lot of rabbit holes. So the family takes, uh, finds a benefactor, a Scottish millionaire, that basically says to them that he will fund different investigative practices for them. So at one point there's this investigator and then there's a different investigator and there's several of these and these four episodes really um follow those things and what i got out of it i don't know about you kathy but what i got out of it is of course the desperation of these parents and this millionaire who's in the documentary and is interviewed many times and his support of them 
and his wanting to find Madeline too, a very publicized case. But also, it's really evident of like the charlatans in the world um, mm-hmm. and how this guy gets taken for a lot of money under the guise of different people are going to help them find. And a couple of them are very bad people and they get taken for a lot of money. And a couple of them are very good people and are in the documentary and, and we're very trying very hard. Yes. Um, I would agree with all of that. Yeah. And, and in the end they, you know, Madeline has still not been found. That's the, that's the upshot of the whole thing. And there's a lot of sketches out there of what she would look like. Um, I guess she'd be what, 15 or 16 now. Um, uh, yeah, she probably would be about that. Yeah. If she was three in 2007, then she'd be 15 now, depending on when her birthday is. So I wanted to just mention too, I don't want, we don't need to go too much into it, but they, you know, they do do this side case that involves the the drug trade and um you know which is always a possibility and what i'm referencing is they draw in this other case that they think could potentially be related to where madeline is um and they're the guy who ends up getting arrested and and put in prison for abducting i think it was his own niece Mm -hmm. um they they try to you know see if he has any information he says no whatnot we don't need to go into that but that this stuff happens every day even here in the states with um sex trafficking and drug trades and and if that is the case which is very feasible um especially if we're looking at it just let's say the parents it was negligence they really just were stupid and left the doors unlocked and someone went in and was watching them and this little girl is gone she's gone they're never going to find her if she's caught up in the drug trade She's either dead or used or raped or all of the above, but they'll (laughs) never find her. Yeah, it's one thing if she was abducted um, like a, a, what was her name? J.C. Duggard or Mm -hmm. Elizabeth Smart or, you know, abducted by one guy or one couple or one family and has been living all this time, you know, as their daughter or sex slave or what have you that's that's one thing those are the ones that get found right they Mm -hmm. they sometimes get found or recognized um but sold across country lines um i would say there's very little chance as well yeah and it's really sad of her being alive or recognizable or and then you wonder how many children who don't who either don't have parents or don't have the the money or the status that the McCanns have that disappear and no one ever even bothers to look for that's right I mean um I happen to uh have had quite a bit of training in CSEC you know the um, children's oh it's not a pretty not a pretty sight um children in um sex in the sex trade sold into slavery basically Um, yeah and so not, there's a lot of very terrible options that we can all go to of where she might have gone, but nobody knows. Um, and the other thing that's been going on lately is um, John Benet, the John Benet case has been back in the, in the news. And 
there was it, it's be, I, I believe it's because a longtime suspect in the murder has um, basically confessed in a series of letters. Um, this murder, uh, John Benet Ramsey's murder, happened in 1996. She was found dead in the basement of her own home. On Christmas Eve, I believe, right? On Christmas Eve, yeah. Um, And for those of you who know the case, which if you're true crime fans, you probably do. uh, The mother has always been, was always a longtime suspect and then was cleared eventually. Um, But so there was a suspect named Gary Oliva um, who was convicted of Uh, He was a convicted pedophile. Uh, He's currently serving a 10-year sentence in Colorado for possession of child pornography. Uh, I I guess his parole is up in 2020, or he's up for parole in 2020. Um, But he wrote a lot of letters to a former classmate of his um, saying things like, I never loved anyone like I did John Bonet, and yet I let her slip and her head bashed in half and I watched her die. It was an accident. She's not like other kids, like basically talking about how she was unique and how he loved her, which is commiserate with what we hear from this type of psychology. Um, And he goes on and on. So there's these letters and you can you can find articles about it online where he admits to it. So it's back in the news and there's another documentary out called the casting of john benet um, on netflix before we go there yeah before we go there because that's a whole other thing yeah i just wanted to make a quick comment about the this alleged new suspect who's writing these letters um suspect but yeah what'd you you say back in the day yeah i mean this guy who's now you know saying whatever whatever what wrote him 10 years ago he wrote him now whatever is just also look at um in working with sex offenders sexually violent predators i could also see this guy just wanting that notoriety sure you know and so because there's a part of me that still i don't know why i still believe it was the mother but i don't know what this guy's gain would be in writing those letters unless i mean there's so much sociopathy with some of these pedophiles yeah absolutely and that's that's why it's you know allegedly confessing yeah in these letters um i mean these the only thing one of the things i read is that so the the person he wrote the letters to was i guess um a high school friend like a former classmate I, i'm not actually sure if it's high school okay but a former classmate of his a male yeah a former classmate of his that he's been writing letters to over the years i guess um but only recently was confessing in his letters the the friend i guess the former classmate has stated that he always suspected uh, had killed john bonnet and that when the original he was you know gary was a suspect back in the day because mm-hmm. well for many reasons but i guess this former classmate as he suspected his friend and immediately called the police and told them about that a million years ago you know like when mm-hmm. it first started to which they you know promptly ignored it or whatever they did you know that's one of the correlations between like this case and madeline mccann case is that police always get raked over the coals because 
there's always some lead later that they didn't follow that becomes right which makes them look bad but I also understand from the police standpoint right you've got a lot going on there's a yeah lot of, there's a lot of information coming in. yeah it's easy it's easy to do that whole like Monday morning quarterback of like you guys should have should have should have should have should have should have yeah of course Your job is complicated yeah, and I mean, this guy, Gary, was a registered sex offender back in the day, and mm-hmm. he didn't live far from the Ramsey home. And Was there he, any sort of, oh, so he lived close. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He, um, he was a suspect. Um, yeah. Uh, but I, I, and I don't know why he was cleared. I don't know all the details, but um, anyway, I guess there's these letters, and so it just kind of got back in the, I, I, I guess, I guess. So I guess Gary pleaded guilty to them. He's saying, listen, he's saying, so who knows, but he's saying he pleaded guilty to the murder of John Bonet, as well as like the countless charges of assaults and sexual abuse against many children. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, but the, um, the, the arrest affidavit that they have from him is heavily redacted. So there's like these redacted sections of it where it sort of it it seems like they're talking about John Bonet. Um, it seems like they're what talking about John Bonet, mm-hmm. or that he was talking about John Bonet in his confession. Mm-hmm. So I guess we'll see. Mm-hmm. I guess we'll see. Yeah, what's up in there. Uh, it's so hard to say in those cases. I I also think that the you know there's always a the other side too which is they they intentionally painted these parents to be the perpetrators as well and that they did really uh, they did a good job at focusing on you know mom was a little out there yeah yeah, you could say that you know to say the least yeah so she was like you were saying on the break you know she was an easy suspect I mean she was she's easy to it's easy to believe she did it well and that's the similar with the Madeline McCann peeps you know they're it's they're easy to not really believe because of the affect because of the way they're acting now now tell me tell me a little bit about your if you remember like your impressions of the mother this mother John Bonet's mother like oh, what did it about I mean, her that was so dislikable uh i don't know she was just i don't even know how to describe it i think i think she does remind me of um some clients i've had where there's almost like this histrionic or like over dramatized response to everything and just just playing this uh i don't know it was like she was playing a role and then you know she's also i'm just not a fan of these stage moms yeah, who, you know, she she has a, a young girl who looks like she's 25. So I have a lot of I have a lot of negative feelings about just the hypersexuality around John Bonet and how mom created that. So again, right. in some ways, I see that as like I did with the McCanns, where there's a piece of negligence, right? And not to say that anyone deserves a pedophile because no. they look a certain way. That's not at all what I'm saying. But you know, mom, mom was a stage mom and she, she, you know, and there's, a, there's just so much like the ransom note had so much detail, which now could make sense 
if we're looking at a guy who wrote all these letters, I mean, maybe, maybe mm-hmm. he wrote the ransom note really long too. I mean, that would yep. match up, but then the ransom amount was the same amount she made that year. How would he have that information? Yeah. I remember it was the same. It was like 25,000 or something. And it was the same amount as the husband's bonus. It's just, there's yeah. too many things that I'm like, how would, how is, I mean, that's very coincidental. Yeah, it sure is. Unless there was something between the mom and this pedophile. I don't know. I don't There's a connection sure. there. But I think exactly. to directly answer your question, I think there were a couple things about mom that I didn't like. I didn't like her personality. I didn't like how she came off. She, um, I mean, in some ways she had a right to be a victim because she had, she did lose her child, but it was like this very big, almost overly dramatized. She wasn't relatable. Maybe yeah, that's what had I'm a very to say. dramatic personality, and you yeah. can imagine that someone who's a stage mom would. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, she would. That's like a stereotype we have. Yeah, of who would be the mother of someone who is in pageants, is in beauty pageants. I mean, obviously. We're not saying that all mothers of beauty pageant contestants are like that, but it's, no, but there's a it's the stereotype. There's a culture. Yeah, it's the stereotype that fits into what would be a sensational case. You know, you have to think about the cases that the media gloms onto. And of course, it's the ones that have these characters in them. And so she was certainly a character. That's for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So one thing is, is so the casting of John Bonet is a documentary on Netflix, and it's an interesting, it's an interesting one in the sense that it's a documentary where it was, uh, you know, premiered at Sundance in 2017, and you're basically watching uh, the film through the eyes of someone who is auditioning all the actors that are going to play. John Bonet, John Bonet's brother, John Bonet's mother and father in reenactments of what happened. And through that, you're listening to the actors and many of the actors that are um, auditioning for the parts are people that either knew the Ramses, lived in the neighborhood, etc. So you're getting all of this kind of a take on what was going on in the neighborhood, how the case was responded to, all these different characters, all these different actors. And it takes you through the John Bonet uh, case, I guess. Not very, not very much of the case, but just sort of the reactions of the community, I guess. Is that is that kind of accurate? <laughs> yeah, except it's so hard to um, really watch this and pay attention to the case because it looks like you're watching a mockumentary. I felt like I was watching Waiting for Guffman. If anyone out there's a fan of Christopher Guest and you've seen like right. Final Tap, or This is Spinal Tap, and Best in Show. I mean, it was, they were yeah. so proud to, and then there's these reenactments where, you know, the father finds the body, and the acting is outrageous, and the guy who's like, you know, I've been compared to uh, Chris Christopherson, and, <laughs> and, and I'm like, is this for real? I can't. It's amazing. It's and really, think- it's really amazing in that way. It's gotta, um, because what, what, what Kathy's talking about is that instead of doing a typical documentary where they take you through news footage and interviews with the real people. And, and then they do these um, dramatized sections. Cause like when you're watching Madeline McCann, they're, they're in all documentaries that go through true crime, they, 
they cast actors and they do these reenactments as with voiceovers over them. Like that's part of every true crime documentary you watch. So instead of doing it that way, they they show you the um, the footage of the actors that had to do the scenes because when you go, as an actor when you go and audition you have to do scenes um and you know then they, they and they film them and then the producers watch them and then they decide who they want and it's pretty i think it's pretty funny and amazing <laughs> the way it is I th- and i think the heart the hardest part for me when i was exactly what that this was, was going to be this so there's this dichotomy that happens because it's such a tragic story but then yeah. you're watching this and you're like this is a train wreck like these people are horrible yeah well they're all these so, local you know local actors auditioning that's for- why it reminded me of guffman oh yeah it's got that the dairy queen to pop up it's it's a it's unique so, you know, just keep in mind the reason why I always mention when things have premiered at Sundance that there's usually, uh, not always, but there's usually some very unique kind of twist on the way it's done because mm-hmm. that's the idea of film festival fair, especially Sundance. So but it's a very unique kind of, it's just unique and, um, and interesting. And I mean, I don't know about you, but I watched it in anticipation of this episode where we're talking about these things to just sort of yeah. familiarize myself with with John Bonet and remember that and also just because it just came out and <laughs> it's an interesting it's an interesting thing yeah I actually haven't finished it yet but I did start <laughs> just like this is something yeah you're like what well what I'm, is go this? back and watch it with a little more <laughs> yeah and a little more knowledge or a little more like okay I'm gonna try to see what this has to offer <laughs> um but there's a lot of documentaries on John Bonet I mean there's a whole 2016 documentary on John Bonet where it basically sums up that the brother did it you know like and then and then the brother in real life sues them for like seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars and wins so you know is he uh estranged from his father I don't know because you know that he's now spoken out for the first time in like 20 years or whatever and um yeah, and you know, I was watching a, a short interview with him, and they were asking, like, you know, do you think your mother did it? No, it's not like he's gonna be like, yes, yes, I do. I think it was my mother. You know, I mean, <laughs> right. but um, it was really interesting because you know he was so little when this happened, and now to see him like all grown up as this young man, and he's been just in, you know, just behind closed doors for so many years. I mean, I can't even imagine being in the shadow of that. Yeah, I can't imagine it either. But I can say one of my favorite parts of um, the casting of John Bonet is when they um, audition all the little boys for his part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're actually, they're actually the best actors in the whole thing. Oh, I, I would <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, they're pretty probably because they didn't wait till age forty to start acting. I mean, that's probably right. part of it. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, there's not a lot of contrived. Yeah, kids often just bring the bring the authenticity. You know. These are just, they're two really sad cases. Very much so. Um, and I can't just, let's just go to the side of, you know, the parents were, were not involved at all. I just can't imagine living with this. I, I have a, a, a friend of mine um, who whose daughter was so the jumped off you know, the Golden Gate committed suicide and whatnot. But but really what ended up happening is they think that it was foul play. And the there's a lot of stuff going on in the case. 
and I asked him every day, you know, they never really solved it. And I asked him every, and he says, you know, Kathy, I, I feel like there's parts of my day. It's been now like five years. I think he goes, I just, I go through hell a little bit each day and I have to stay busy and I have to, and we, we talk a lot. And, um, I just, I told him, I said, I can't imagine what it's like to have to live in that every single day and to not have any closure. Yeah. The amount um, the amount of strength you have to have to mm-hmm. be able to see yeah. that there's more to life, that there's yeah. else that you can live for. Like I can understand not being able to figure that out. Um, yeah. And people and, who and figure it, it out being amazing. And there's so much evidence in this case that shows that she was murdered, you know? But, and, and like he right. said, you know, there's, he goes, my, unfortunately, my daughter's just a number. There's a lot of these that they just, it's easier to point it towards suicide and then they close the case. Yeah. For lots of reasons, I'm sure. But yeah. Yeah. I, so I just, as a parent, I can't even begin. I'm not a parent, but I can't imagine what that would be. Yeah, no, I can, I think we can all resonate with how unbelievable that would be and how, unless you've been through it, there's absolutely no way to really understand it um but then I was also looking into a little bit when we were when we were looking at these cases I was looking into a little bit about um parents who kill their children so let's swing it the other way for a minute um not saying that these are two cases where that's happened but um so there was this study that I was reading about that the FBI conducted um and it's maybe four or five years old. And they estimated that there was a, there was a study and it was over like three decades. Uh, and the data showed that 450 children were killed every year by their parents. So that's not a huge number. Uh, but it's interesting. How, what, what was the number, Shannon? I'm sorry, what did you say? 450 children a year. Yeah, that's not. I mean, big number. It's awful still. No, yeah. Yeah. This was the FBI homicide data. So, you know, okay. take it for what it is. But, and they did it over, over three decades. So, um, and I believe it came out about four or five years ago. But so what was, what was, that's an interesting thing. But another thing that was interesting about it was that there are patterns that emerged. So if we look at these patterns in relation to these cases, you it gives you I think it gives an interesting light to whether or not you think maybe these parents did it right so that's just what does the data say it's just one more thing to look at so one of the things that that in this study it said that the three out of four were under five three out of four of the children killed were under five years old Mm. and more than a third of the victims were under a year Wow. So there's that. So it's most mostly the infanticide. Yes. And then the other chunk is under five. Um, Nearly half of all the victims died from physical beatings or other injuries at the parents' hands. So these are abusive, nearly half. So just under half are from parents who were abusing their children regularly and just, and beat them up and killed them basically. Mm -hmm. Um, the fathers were more likely to kill. So men killed six out of 10 of the children, so 60%, most often from beatings or shootings. I realize this is really dark, guys, but it's, a, it's, it's interesting in the sense to, mm-hmm. to give you perspective. 
sometimes these are from like the child cries too much or something hit, right beat the child to death right and 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 you and you think about like these are people that are already abusing their children and then something happens um fathers were at fault 75 percent of cases where children were shot to death in other words that was one of the things that fathers would do and 64 percent were the child was beaten so really violent violence as a masculine pursuit is basically what bared out of mm-hmm. and when mothers killed they were far more likely the ones who would kill the children under one um and that's what you were kind of alluding to was like the infanticide or the postpartum depression or mm-hmm. we're not sure of the causes this isn't about cause this isn't anything other than the facts the patterns that bared out um nearly 40 percent of the children killed by their mothers were less than a year old so it was one a very small number but in that small number those were the patterns very very young children many of them abusive parents. So it's a very, I guess I wanted to say all that just to to hit home the point of, it's an incredibly small percentage of cases where parents kill their children who are not abusive parents. You know, they're, they're just, it's just really small. I just wanted to yeah. drive that fact home from the data. Yeah. So if these, in these two very sensationalized cases, if the parents were at fault, just keep in mind how rare that would be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, mm. I know. I guess on that note, we'll take a break. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to take a break. That wraps up our conversation of these two um, cases and documentaries, I guess. And for a change of pace we're come right back with our what the hell segment sounds Um, good lighten it up a little bit so we'll be right back everybody all right we're back with terror talk this is our what the hell segment which is basically (laughs) kathy can't stop laughing at her own um (laughs) segment so i'm just gonna get this out quick um (laughs) we each bring a usually a true some kind of true crime story that makes us say what the hell they're generally bizarre and Kathy can't stop laughing so Kathy (laughs) share share with us this is so stupid (laughs) (laughs) so it's called naked man falls through the ceiling and destroys everything oh my (laughs) so in what sounds like a stress dream a 24 year old naked man crashes through the ceiling of a home in British Columbia. I mean, let's just picture that. Yeah. Let's just stop there. You're at home, crashes through the ceiling of a home in British Columbia, proceeded to rummage through the house, destroying everything in his wake. The family arrives home and they find their house in shambles. And the woman saying, he totaled my master bedroom. Oh my God. Went into the closet and every room, but he did not steal a thing. Okay. That's it. He was arrested. But I'm just picturing this. You, I, I wish you could see the, the no, picture I mean, in I, front of me. I mean, I'm picturing, like, why was he sleeping in the attic? I don't think he was sleeping through the attic. Why was he naked? In the attic. He was, <laughs> I don't know, but there's a hole in the ceiling. All the wirings ripped out. And that's oh. all you see in this photo. And he just, I, I mean, maybe he was living up there. Yeah, you got to think he was, you know, living up there. But he out. falls through 
and then goes through the house like the Tasmanian devil and just leaves. So mental illness (laughs) is what we're alleging, obviously. Wow. Yeah. And (laughs) these stories are, you know, unresearched. We don't look into them at all. We just find a news item that makes us say, what the hell? And we read it. And so there's always questions because it's like, (laughs) why is he naked? What was he doing in the attic? why where did he go (laughs) like and then and then when it says he totaled my master bedroom i just picture like this uh, i I mean he's just going through it like the like a tornado yeah i mean i'm imagining anger like he just he's having an episode and he's just like destroying everything but then or he was just high and he was looking for money i don't know but yeah i I wish of course not part of what makes this so funny is i wish you could see the picture i'm looking at well, I'm sure we can Google it. Yeah. If you tell us the name of it, we'll Google it. Uh, it's under, what did I Google here? Ranker, R-A-N-K-E-R.com. Super weird crimes committed for no reason. <laughs> Excellent. There's a p- bunch of good ones on here. There's some really creepy ones on here, too. Anyway, I saw that, and I just instantaneously started laughing. <laughs> oh, my God. He had to be naked. He had to be naked. <laughs> yeah i don't know why i'd like i so, wish they had like a nest cam and they yeah, caught him face yeah, planting yeah, yeah. through the ceiling and, and you could slow well, it down oh I see, I see the picture now i just googled it yeah. um you know that's our second what the hell that's like a guy coming through the ceiling <laughs> no i was yes, i didn't want the one too. you did there's an episode i won when you first started i was like i wonder if this is the same one i did a while back but no oh my god this is so funny that's amazing. yeah it's 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 kind of close to the one you did a little bit but that one was like he fell through the ceiling and the cops were there <laughs> that's oh that's right they were right there <laughs> yeah all right so here's mine um oh boy it's quick a des moines driver reported that someone had broken into their truck in an apparent attempt to steal the vehicle in 2015 when the hot wiring proved unsuccessful so basically breaks in it doesn't work oh crap now what the suspect allegedly i love allegedly Mm -hmm. grabbed a plastic bag of doggy poop instead (laughs) so there's those there's dog poop in the car. He can't steal the car, so he steals the dog poop. Oh, my God. And so that could be the end of the story, but I'll just add this. Um, the strangest thing at all of all is when they registered the report, they wrote down that the missing goods were valued at $1. <laughs> <laughs> what? So dog poop in a plastic bag should you steal it from someone is worth that much your crime is one dollar wow you needed to know that it's very important information my dog's sitting right here she's offended a bit i'm just wondering how much money we can make off of your dog's dog poop well because if each load is worth a dollar you know we could probably out of her we could probably make some good cash yeah, I mean she's little, so yeah, you know, probably may have to group two together. But all right, we've gone off the rails. So, um, <laughs> these are how our conversations go in real life. So, thank you so much 
for listening to Tara talk today. Um, so uh, my name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everybody. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. If you enjoyed this show, there are two things you could do for us. Subscribing and sharing our episodes on social media, as well as writing a review on iTunes. Plus, you could check out our Patreon page. Don't hesitate to contact us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We upload new episodes of Terror Talk every Wednesday and of Shrink Chat every Friday. Until then, goodbye and have a pleasant tomorrow.